There is a place above the knees and below the waist, sort of rhymes, called the pelvis. And for 50% of people on the planet, those ones who are born with female parts, this is a very active place. And today we're going to talk about pelvic pain in the seven domains. This place, which is between the top of the legs and the top of the hip bones, has, of course, bones and muscles. But the pelvic bones form a bowl. And inside that bowl is bowel and bladder. And guys have those parts. But in women, there are also ovaries and the fallopian tubes and the uterus and the cervix. And leading into that bowl is the vulva and the vagina. Now, these organs are very dynamic. They are changing every day. Of course, the bowel fills up and empties. Thank goodness. And the bladder fills up and empties. Also, thank goodness. But the ovaries swell with a follicle that has an egg and it bursts. And fallopian tubes collect the eggs and the uterus lining builds up. And then it squeezes everything out with a lot of squeezing once a month. And the vagina has things that go on and we'll leave that there. And the vulva has very delicate skin that's exposed to hardships daily, lycra and bicycle seats and beach sand and swimsuits and other things we won't go into. And it's amazing we don't have pain in one of these areas every day. But some women do. And today we're going to talk about pelvic pain. And to help us understand pelvic pain, we have Dr. Howard Sharp joining us in the studio. And we're actually in the studio for the first time in a year and a half. And Dr. Howard Sharp is professor and vice chair for Clinical Affairs in the Department of Obstetrics and Gynecology at University of Utah Health. And he's the director of the Utah Women's Pelvic Pain Clinic. Thanks for coming all the way into the studio, Howard. Well, thanks for having me. And that's a great introduction to the pelvis. Nice job. And, <laughs> and you know it so well because you've practiced in it for a long, long time. I have, and I've got one. So I'm interested. So, Howard, you are a phenomenal pelvic surgeon and an OB. But what kind of directed you toward pelvic pain as a special interest? It really kind of happened um, partly by de default and partly by inheritance. Oh, there you go. So, <laughs> as you know, my father was on faculty for a number of years here, and he started the pelvic pain clinic. So I have to say, you know, he, he is the one that started it here. And he was a little bit of a cowboy in that he would find something that he read about in the literature and then would do it. And it's harder to just do that now, but at the time he did that. He went away and did a sabbatical in uh, London with a, a guy named Richard Beard, who and he learned how to do pelvic venography. And then he spent some time with Perry Fine and and some of the other great anesthesiologists here that do the pain clinic and learned how to do trigger points. I want to I want to take a sidestep and say, this was not early in his career. Your dad never stopped learning. He'd already had a phenomenal career as an OBGYN in private practice. He was very sought after. He was kind of one of the premier OBs. And when he came up to the U, he was always curious. And he took on the study of this problem that most of us just wanted to shut our eyes and, and plug our ears and say, we don't know anything about it. And he learned about it and he taught us. Yeah, I think he was someone who was very inquisitive. Yeah, yeah. And so I, I think he realized it was a a black box, if you will, and tried to learn about it. So briefly, the way I got it was when I finished my fellowship, he basically said, you're taking over when I <laughs> retire, right? So I said, oh, I guess. 
Yeah, right. That's history. That's it. That's That's history. Well, that's how it started. Well, we're grateful because it's a difficult field. And sometimes you have to say we don't know. So we're left with people who feel uncomfortable. They're in pain every day. And we don't always have the answer. We have a lot more answers than we did 15, 20 years ago. I'll tell you that. Because there's a lot more known about how the brain processes information. As we get to the physical domain, we're going to kind of march through the seven domains. But starting with the physical domain, I don't want to ignore acute pelvic pain because every person with women parts will probably have had pelvic pain at least once in their life. Maybe it was their first period that had cramps, or maybe it was labor, or maybe it was their first intercourse. But I'd say everybody's had an episode of pain. And there are some kinds of pains that you can't ignore. So all of a sudden, down there, you have the worst pain in your life. What could that be? Yeah. Even acute pain is sometimes difficult to Mm -hmm. to figure out. Mm -hmm. So luckily, we have a a lot of diagnostic uh, modalities because sometimes you can, that, that over you were talking about, which can distend, sometimes that will undergo torsion. A twist, yeah. It will twist, and um, that can be very painful and is, in fact, of course, an, an emergency. Endometriosis, sometimes um, when there is bleeding within the structures of the pelvis, that can be very painful. There's sometimes a cyst will rupture and can cause some irritation. And then, of course, there's infections, mm-hmm. uh, pelvic infl- inflammatory disease. So all of those things need to be considered. Yeah. And then, of course, the one that worries us all is ectopic pregnancy, a pregnancy in a tube that starts to grow and then ruptures, and that can cause pain. So the worst pain that you've had in your life that seems, and you're not feeling well at all, either you've got a fever or you're getting dizzy, that kind of pain takes you to the emergency room for care. Yes. And and we absolutely want to make sure that they come to urgent care, Mm. emergency care, so we can make sure that we can get them taken care of and not something that's going to be life-threatening. Right. But there are people who may have started with one acute episode, or maybe they just started with an ache that just got worse. It's now bothering them a lot of the time. So what's the... When does acute pain become chronic pain? What's the definition of chronic pelvic pain? Well, you know, there's a little bit of a time course to it, and it's somewhat arbitrary. But, uh, you know, acute pain is thought to be pain that is less than three months. And a chronic, the important thing about chronic pain is that it is thought to be more than three to six months, but that it's non-cyclic. Oh, yeah. Okay. Because, you know, the cyclic stuff is going to come and go, but chronic pain is more of a almost daily or the majority of the time. Yeah. And so then we have to start thinking about other things, and that's where the pain processing comes in. And that's probably the biggest difference between acute and chronic pain is the processing of pain. Well, tell us about who's processing. You're processing, assessing it, or the computer's processing it, or is the brain is processing it? It's the way our brain and mm. central nervous system processes it. And we'll get into this with some of the other domains, which, for example, stress, childhood um, abuse, and things like that. But all of this can affect how our central nervous system processes pain. I liken it to a highway. Mm. So you're on a, a, a highway, maybe you're going on I, I-15 and it's totally congested. You, you can't get through because there's just too crowded. We have to somehow fix this such that we either make more lanes or we make um, we put less cars on the track. Mm-hmm. And so it's just the, the central nervous system is having a hard time processing all of that signal and we have to help in that regard. Once memories about pain are laid down, we keep reinforcing them. I think sometimes about phantom pain people have had as a limb removed. 
and because maybe it was painful, it hurt, they had something wrong or a cancer, and the limb came off, but it still hurts them. The brain still has memories of that. Absolutely. And and that probably has to do with some central sensitization, mm-hmm. which is a similar thing. It's, um, you know, we think that central sensitization has to do with either duration or just the, the degree of pain. Right. So something, I mean, I've had a lot of patients that had, for example, a, a terrible kidney stone and the stone has passed, but they had this terrible pain in their flank that has just persisted. And, and eventually we can get it to go away, but the stone is well gone, but the pain persists. So that's a, a very severe pain that causes some maybe wind up in the, in the central nervous system. But then you've also got that person that's had pain for years and years. Maybe it started out as a little bit of endometriosis, and now it's every day. There's a concept that was came discovered, or not discovered, but articulated in, in the 70s called the biopsychosocial model of disease. And a really smart psychiatrist uh, from the University of Rochester, a very wise man, said, you know, all diseases have within them and how we cope with them and how we heal them, the the biological part, um, the social part, the psychological part, and recently we've added the environmental part. And how we get better means we have to get better in all these domains. So it's kind of the seven domains before the seven domains. So we'd be picked up after this wonderful model. And let's talk a little bit about emotional pain because... It's always hard to know whether someone is emotionally in pain and that makes their pain worse. Or, boy, if I've had a toothache for a week, I am not a happy camper. And I'm normally a happy camper. Yeah, yeah. Oh, you are. I am. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, it's it's so true. If you have a toothache and you're driving down the road and someone cuts you off, that toothache's going to get worse because you, you added stress. And that's just true. And then... You add that to someone who has chronic pain all the time, that becomes pretty significant. In terms of this emotional process, I'm thinking about people who are resilient. I've seen people with horrible problems in their pelvis. I mean, truly horrible. And when I ask them about their daily life, they talk about the work they're doing in their community and they talk about, you know, visiting their parents and they don't talk about the fact that their ovaries are stuck to everything and, and everything's scarred up. Are there some people who have an emotional construct that is makes them more resilient? Well, I, I think so. Um, and, and we know that there's a lot that goes into this. For example, history of abuse, mm-hmm. um, a, a terrible thing. that, and, and particularly, there have been studies that have looked at what percentage of patients with chronic pelvic pain will discover or will will admit to or acknowledge acknowledge that yeah that they've been sexually abused and it's almost 50 percent yeah and of those about a third of them would score high on a post-traumatic stress disorder screen right and the earlier in childhood that that happens it really affects the um, neuroprocessing so they may have a really a much harder time dealing with something with all that has happened to their central nervous system over years. Mm-hmm. So that might be a person that may be less resilient by no fault of their own. By the time, you know, many women actually get to your clinic, because you see patients throughout the Intermountain West, kind of kind of from the Rockies to the Sierras, um, they often have a long history of both emotional trauma and, of course, the pelvic pain. And they may have been given narcotics 
and they may be self-medicating with alcohol and they are anxious and they may be self-medicating with other drugs. And those kinds of things help you for a little minute be away from your pain, but they bring back the pain doubly when you withdraw. Yeah, it's it's a tough thing because so you know there's desperation. Yeah, and you see this every day. Yeah, I, you know, if you told someone to go stand on their head for ten hours oh. a day, they would do it to get rid of it. I mean, it's that tough for them. So, a lot of them are just grabbing anything that they can, and then the opioid addiction happens, and then you can even get opioid induced pain. So it it really is a, a destructive cycle, and. So one of the things that we try to do in, in the, the pelvic pain clinic is try to understand what medications are they taking, what therapies have they used, and, and a lot of it is education. Yeah. You know, it is yeah. really trying to change how they think about uh, their disease and give them some new tools. With respect to privacy for your patients, is there is there a patient or somebody who comes to mind who was successful in, in all those things? You know, I, I remember a patient who came and um, actually could not stop crying throughout the entire interview that oh. I met with her. Oh. And she came in with her mother. She had been recently married, but could never consummate the marriage. So intercourse was terribly painful and um, had seen a number of docs, ended up getting put on lithium for bipolar disease. They actually had her, her marriage annulled because it was a it, it just wasn't going to work for the in terms of the husband. So she was pretty broken, and you know we went through this. We found out what her problem was. She did not need to be on lithium at all. She got a complete fix. It, it needed a right diagnosis and to get rid of some of the the things that she was going through. But that was I'll never forget that patient. And the fact that um, you weren't judgmental and you took some time to learn the biopsychosocial, all the things that came around with her. And especially, you know, to be a woman and think that this is your life is going to be maybe being married and then being a mother and not be able to engage in the kinds of social and intimate acts that will create that. What a loss. What a loss. Yeah, totally devastating for her and had she had no hope. Yeah. So we don't always win, you know, but most of the time we can improve and help and uh, get things going the right direction. Okay. Well, Professor, we're going to do a medical mystery. We have a listener who's a 25-year-old, and she tells her story as being a woman who's she's never been sexually active. Um, She has been very physically active. She's been an athlete, and she always had painful periods, but now she has pain every day, and whenever she goes... And uh, works out. She's a runner. And just running hurts her pelvis. And she's kind of stopped doing everything. And she isn't sure what it does. It's worse with her periods, but it's worse every day. And sometimes it feels like she's, you know, it hurts when she has bowel movements. And then it hurts when she eats too much. And everything down there is all messed up. So what's what's going on? So how long does she have painful periods? Oh, she's had painful periods since she was maybe 15. So a long time. Yeah. Uh And then it just kind of gradually became more of a a constant problem. Right. And she's seen a couple doctors and they they just said, oh, you know, here's some ibuprofen or we'll put you on birth control pills. But that kind of made her gain a little weight and then she couldn't run and she stopped that and now she just hurts all the time. Well, I have a guess. Yeah. (laughs) 
Well, I wonder if she has levator tension myalgia. Ah, yeah. So what often happens when you have painful menses, you know, I mean, of course, that could be endometriosis, could Mm -hmm. be primary dysmenorrhea, just just painful periods. But often as that happens, people kind of clench. Oh, yeah. And tighten. And so the, the pelvic floor now is is very painful and so when you run pelvic floor is going to have to tighten and all those muscles are basically in spasm so that'll be my my first guess so um so in the what we call differential diagnosis is might be painful just dysmenorrhea i suppose it could be endometriosis or this condition which wraps up her running and her pain how are you going to figure that out? Well, we, we do a pretty involved questionnaire. I have a, like a nine-page questionnaire oh, that uh-huh. goes over what's going on with the GI tract, what's going on with the GU tract. So uh, a lot of questions about that. The physical exam is key. So history and physical. MRIs, ultrasounds, much less helpful for chronic pain. Oh, uh-huh. So the key thing is going to be to do that exam and see if her levator anti muscles are, are ten, tender on exam. Okay, so those are the muscles that are right in her pelvic area. Yes, so as you talked about the pelvis being a bowl, mm-hmm. that's the bottom of the bowl. Mm-hmm. And the those muscles hold everything in. So it holds the bladder, the, the cervix, the, 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 the rectum, all of that is held in with those muscles. If you do that exam and you push on those muscles and she says, oh, that, that really hurts... What would you do for that? Yeah, so a couple of things. First of all, we want to know, is there something going on with the pelvis? Is it out of alignment? Because mm-hmm. sometimes they'll get a leg length discrepancy. Maybe their sacroiliac joint is out of alignment. Then we get physical therapy to get them back in alignment. Mm-hmm. And then we also sometimes have to do pelvic floor physical therapy where they actually work those muscles out and learn them or teach them how to do biofeedback. Oh, and that would be great because she'd like to go back to running again. She was actually hoping to be a collegiate athlete, but she had to stop running in her junior year. And so she might actually be able to get back to it. Let's get her back out there. Physical therapy. One of the most helpful things. In fact, you know, it's interesting. I I got involved with this, this group called the International Public Pain Society. And as it turns out, most are, are gynecologists, but over the years, many more are physical therapists and they are the secret weapon to so much pelvic pain in terms of therapy. They do a great job, but yeah, the, the history and the physical exam really are the, the two most valuable portions of the figuring it out. And that would be so great for her because she's already physically minded and being able to use her body in a way that didn't hurt her um, in terms of working with a physical therapist would probably really in reinforce her sense of her body's strength and autonomy again. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. I would I really mean, give her body back. Heal herself as she learns to do her own biofeedback with someone. So yeah, absolutely. Oh, that would be great. I want to talk a little bit about the social domain because anybody with chronic pain, whether it's headache or backache or belly pain, but particularly pelvic pain, it affects their life at home. Certainly it may affect their intimate life with their intimate partner, but they're also maybe not able to be the mom or the support person for the all the people that women have to take care of. Absolutely. This is such a critical part because you think about someone that is functionally disabled, you know, they cannot go running anymore. They can't, they, they might not be able to go out to eat anymore. So it affects everyone in their family 
and it really creates a very dysfunctional social dynamic. Yeah. We, we have to kind of find out what they're able to do, what, what are they not doing now. And so, yeah, that's a critical part of that. Right. As part of that biopsychosocial part. Well, I also think about the financial domain, because if these are women who provide, either they're working for their own income because they're, they're single, or they are providing for their family, when you're either taking drugs, which keep you from being able to function, or you can't work several days out of the month, or you lost your job because you just didn't come in enough days, your finances, it affects your financial life as well. Yeah. And you're also spending a lot of money on health care. Oh, yeah. So oh. many appointments. So, yeah, the financial piece is is pretty significant. Right. So it, it behooves us to try to do more with the history and the physical rather than getting MRIs on everybody. Right. Well, I've been thinking a little bit about the environmental domain just because we did some research here in Utah with the Reproductive Endocrine Division looking at uh, people who are going to have laparoscopies for any one of a number of reasons and measuring to see if they had levels of of toxic chemicals in their blood. And they found that uh, women who had higher levels of DDT and PCB, and both of these chemicals have been banned, but they were banned some years ago. And women now are reaping the persistence of these drugs in their bodies. And they had a higher incidence of endometriosis than women who didn't have high levels. And so we know the environment can actually change the way our pelvis reads estrogen, may proliferate things like endometriosis, yes. maybe even fibroids. So the environment fits into pelvic pain as it changes the pelvis in ways that we weren't really expecting. Um, you mentioned that helping people learn more is really a good one. But I yeah. think that there's been so much in the pain domain in terms of cognitive and behavioral therapy you have work with the yeah. therapist? Is there someone that you work with there? I don't have one in my clinic. There is one at the um, pain management center, and then there are, are experts that work with this in, in the valley. But it is really important. And, you know, in the past, I, I think a lot of times if we haven't found the answer, we've said, go, go see a psychiatrist. Mm-hmm. And that is not helpful. Mm-mm. Um, Mm-mm. It, it is much more helpful to say, you know, there are some psychological aspects of this that we need some help with. And and actually, I usually start with mindfulness and some of that, which mm-hmm. is kind of, you can do some self-help. And then, then we will often get the pain psychologists involved, which are very helpful. But, you know, if they realize the reason for this is not because they're quote unquote crazy, the reason is that, we, you know, we were talking about the um, the headache and driving down the street and someone cuts you off. It's recognizing when you get stressed or irritated and then saying, oh, yeah, what can I do? I'm, I'm now mindful enough. I'm now realizing that I am getting stressed. What techniques can I use? And that's where pain psychologists come in so well is to teach how to deal with that. We're not necessarily going to cure someone mm-hmm. by sending them to the pain psychologist. We're going to help. Mm-hmm. And I think that's the mindset that I try to explain to patients rather than just handing them off. Right. Well, help them be more resilient. In other yes. words, they know that some days are good days and some days are bad days, even though their pelvis is the same both days. Yep. So how is their brain different on the bad day and what can what things can they do to make more bad days into okay days? 
For sure. Well, here's, here's a stocking stuffer for you. Okay, I'll um, take it. I'll take it. <laughs> <laughs> Go get everyone in your, in your, your house, um, Full Catastrophe Living by John Kabat-Zinn. So he started the mindfulness program I, at yeah. University of Massachusetts. Right. Long very time famous, ago. very famous guy. Yes. He's now retired, but does podcast or uh, does uh, a, a, a TED talk. Yeah. He's just a, brilliant. I actually um, recommend that book to my patients. Mm-hmm. And, and the reason for that is there are there's a lot in there that really teaches how to be resilient. And it's kind of the the blueprint on this. Now there are a lot of other books, and that's an older one, but they re you know re, they change. Everybody it refers to him, though. Everybody refers to him because he did the very first work to show that you could lower blood pressure, that you yes. could lengthen people's lives who had cancer. Yes, and there's actually decent studies on this. Yeah, um, you're, you're absolutely cancer, blood pressure, all that. Yes, so I, I think it is it's critical that we have some kind of a psychological domain. Mm-hmm. Um, that, that is addressed with chronic pain. Well, that's where having people, you have, to, you have to listen enough that they trust you, that when you say, I think we're going to need to help your brain be more resilient, they're not going to turn the volume down on you because you oh. have to listen long enough that they'll believe you. So true. And I still struggle with that mm-hmm. because, you know, sometimes I'll kind of come out of a patient interaction and I think, did I, did I did I think they listened to me and I, did I listen to them? Mm-hmm. Did did we communicate? Um, did we connect? And I think that trust. A lot of times, people come in and they've been told that they have adhesions or endometriosis, and they may have that, but it may be a true, true unrelated. They mm-hmm. have they have endo, they have pain, but they've got this chronic pain, and we have to reeducate them. And sometimes that's a bitter pill to swallow when they've been told something different for years and and they've had five operations already and they want you to do their sixth or seventh or eighth yes yeah so it's hard to gain that trust often in in one visit but when you get that connection and you both know it you and the patient you you, you've known that over the years there is nothing so great i completely agree i always want to focus a little bit on the spiritual domain because we don't always know what people's spiritual foundations are when they come to see us. And sometimes when they are crying the whole time, you get a feeling they've got nothing to, you know, hang their hanger on spiritually. But there have been several studies on chronic pain that suggest that people who have a stronger spiritual foundation, it doesn't have to be religious, although it can be helpful if the religious foundation is a positive one. Some religious foundations are not always positive, but people who have a positive religious or spiritual foundation have somewhere to go when they feel like they're adrift. They have somewhere to go. And practicing that foundation can make people feel better. And so there's a study where they took patients with pain, and they had some had pelvic pain, some had chronic headache, some of them had arthritis pain. They were mostly women. And they randomized them to just being restful, taking a restful time, doing uh, mindfulness training, or doing some spiritual-based mindfulness training where... They were trying to connect to something bigger, feeling that they were part of something important, that they were important because they were part of it. So they would practice this 20 minutes a day, and then they would come into the lab and take their hand and put it in icy cold water. And how long could they hold their hand in the water? And as you now that you know I've told you this, it turns out that people who had these spiritual-based training, they had the same amount of pain, but they could hold their and in the water for twice as long. So it's as if they were a little bit more resilient to the input 
from the icy water on their hand. Now, I'm not saying that it fixes everything, but when we think about how we go from bad days to okay days, how we feel like we're part of something bigger instead of something that's so tiny and focused and small in our pelvis, those are things that it's not something for us in the office. We don't always have those tools. But if we don't find out what tools people actually have and encourage them to build on those, then we forget that whole domain. Yeah, I I think it's part of the network. You know, everyone needs a network. Mm -hmm. And if if it's a a spiritual um, mentor or a religion, great. That's that's one more part of the network. So, yeah, I think that's a great point. Okay, before we go, I want to ask, we often ask questions at the Seven Domains about whether you're normal. Women want to know, am I normal? I have this, my breasts aren't the same size, or, you know, I sneeze all the time, and am I normal? So you've taken care of thousands of women, and they come to you maybe in for their annual exam, or come to you and they say, you know, I've, I have an ache somewhere, and it seems to come, you know, a couple of days a month, and then it gets better, and... I haven't really called you up to to complain about it, but it just is there sometimes. But then it goes away. Am I normal? Is this normal? Well, hopefully. Um, <laughs> I like you know, that. I, I, I'm going to use um, part of the definition of chronic pelvic pain, right. and that is pain that also leads to um, d- dysfunction, worry, or a, a visit to the doc. Oh, so. If it's something that is really worrying you, it's worth getting it checked out. And there might be some things that is a very transient pain that's probably not a big problem. But recurrent things, if it keeps coming back or if it's persisting, that would be abnormal. Right. And, and I want to see you want to see, see that patient. Okay, good. So little bits, okay. Everything is fixable. Most yeah. things are fixable. But you want to rule out the bad things. Yes. Yeah. Well, thanks for joining us. And remember, for those of you who are listening, thank you for joining us. And you can get our podcast wherever you get your podcasts. And we have other great shows here on The Scope. But I'm going to finish with my Seven Domains of Pain Haiku. It hurts every day. But some days are brighter now. There's a path ahead. Thank you.